this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. There are real questions that all business leaders need to face as a result of the political turmoil that the country experienced over the past week. But for social platforms in the technology industry, those questions are more existential. The most immediate issue for financial leaders at these companies is the feature of Section 230, the law that gives internet platforms immunity from what their users post on them. In this episode of the Financial Executive Podcast, we speak with Eric Goldman, professor of law at Sarah Clara University and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute. We discuss how Section 230 became such an integral part of the social platforms based in Silicon Valley and what their future business models may look like if the law is reformed. So, Professor Goldman, uh, maybe you could give a little background on who you are and, and what your uh, focus is and your career is all about. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm currently a internet law professor at uh, San Clara University School of Law, which is located in Silicon Valley. Um, I uh, teach internet law um, and uh, sometimes other courses. Uh, I've been working in the field of internet law for over 25 years. I started practicing uh, in 1994 um, and worked in the uh, Silicon Valley, primarily uh, during the dot-com boom, uh, representing uh, internet companies um, uh, that were uh, starting up and uh, taking advantage of the boom. Um, and, uh, and I in particular focus on section 230. It's been a critical mm -hmm. uh, topic since, um, uh, uh, since the 1990s. Um, so for example, I run a blog since 2005, uh, where I blog, uh, virtually every section 230 case that I see. Great. And obviously that's at the top of mind with all the, um, political issues going on right now and what's happening with um, uh, the interface or their interaction with um, social networks and Section 230. So, um, I, you know, given that, maybe you could give a brief explanation of Section 230 and, and why it's important to tech firms located in Silicon Valley. Yeah, Section 230 was enacted in 1996, and it says, just to summarize real efficiently, that websites aren't liable for third-party content. There are some statutory exclusions, but I think if you understand the basic principle, uh, it says that um, websites can publish third-party content without uh, being uh, liable for it. The idea is that um, whoever is originating that content takes full liability for it, but then uh, the uh, intermediaries between uh, the uh, author and uh, the reader aren't liable for uh, the harms that might be created by uh, those posts. And by doing so, what it does is it enables um, uh, uh, services to collect, aggregate, organize, and publish third-party content that they could never afford to uh, cultivate or uh, um, publish um, with the traditional liability regimes for publication. So in a sense, what it does is it um, uh, opens up a whole new vistas for uh, ways for people to interact with each other that we never had in the offline world. And of course, many of those interactions have significant commercial value. So Section 230 has become the foundation of some of the wealthiest in terms of uh, cash flow, in terms of profit, in terms of market cap, um, companies that have ever existed um, because of the fact that uh, they're able to enable new, unique, and commercially valuable conversations that uh, weren't possible any other way. And um, 
Um, Just a follow-up question to that. I mean, has it really morphed or changed since the 90s, or has it pretty much been wrote since that period? Well, obviously, the Internet has developed substantially since the 1990s. There's obviously new technology that exists. And perhaps more importantly, the there's a, a class of incumbent giants in uh, uh, the Internet space that didn't quite exist in the 1990s. There were still giant companies interested in the Internet in circa, say, 1995. But most of those were telcos um, or uh, major content producers, uh, not... Um, uh, this new class of intermediaries like a Google or Facebook, um, they didn't, there wasn't an equivalent to that. So the emergence of these incumbent giants um, certainly changes the complexion of the industry quite a bit. But the underlying dynamics haven't really changed since 1996. In the end, uh, we know that if internet services are responsible for uh, third-party content they publish, they're going to change their behavior in ways that have significant social import. And so even having the giants in place doesn't change the fundamental questions we're asking, which is how can we make sure that we get those benefits of the internet that we value the most? Um, and uh, and it doesn't really matter uh, from a social standpoint whether it's provided by incumbent giants or by small startups, as long as we're able to preserve a, a, an ecosystem that allows those benefits to mature. So I want to ask you a little bit what's about what's going on today. So give us some of your thoughts um, on some of the legal and, and, and some of the political issues that are going into Section 230 right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about the politics, uh, because I think that's where some of the most interesting questions are taking place. Um, There's no doubt that we have uh, a a number of uh, incumbent giants that uh, um, have substantial power. And really, you'll hear things like GAFA, uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Amazon. Sometimes people will put Netflix into that category. But if you just focus on the GAFA entities, um, uh, these uh, companies primarily enable people to talk to each other. Now, Apple has some other businesses. Amazon has some other businesses. But most of the value out of those four companies comes from uh, uh, from allowing people to talk to each other. And so um, the power that's residing in these incumbent companies has definitely caught the attention of the government um, who really doesn't like competition for power. What I mean by that is that they're used to having the power. And when they mm-hmm. see these new power sources emerge elsewhere in our society, um, it gets their attention and it starts raising questions. And so a number of government officials over the last few years have basically created a narrative that big tech is running our country, big tech is dominating our society, and big tech therefore needs to be fixed. Mm. And that narrative has really pervaded so much of the politics in the tech space. Um, There's not really a lot of discussion about the merits and complexities of Section 230 per se. There's a narrative, we need to fix big tech, and Mm. Section 230 is something that they rely upon. So if we fix Section 230, we're probably showing big tech that we're the boss. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really, I think, the the the, um, um, the di- driver of the political questions nowadays. Um, and that's why you also see so much uh, regulatory investment in topics like uh, privacy and antitrust. Those are both tools to also fix big tech. And so in some sense, the government doesn't really care if privacy or antitrust or Section 2 of the reform fixes big tech. They just want to show big tech who's boss. And uh, that's why you're going to see uh, 
uh, movement on all three fronts in 2021. Yeah, and that's sort of a follow-up question to that. Do you think, I mean, you've, been, as you said, you've been following this for, for over 20 years. Do you think it's sort of at a crossroads right now? Do you think that there is enough attention or political will to make changes or alterations to Section 230? Well, again, remember, Section 230 is just one of the vectors of attack for mm -hmm. the um, attack on big tech. So another possibility is that Section 230 doesn't get changed. Some other uh, reform gets passed and everyone pats themselves on the back saying we we stuck it to big tech. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's the likely outcome, but I just want to make sure that everyone understands the, the substitutability of the topics. Um, Section 230 is actually more a metaphor for the problems with big tech than it is actually a legal statute that people talking about it understand and actually are trying to improve or reform. Um, in terms of Section 230 reform, what's happened is that Section 230 uh, has taken on really this, this negative publicity image um, that's been the cumulative effect of uh, years of uh, bashing on the part of people with big megaphones, certainly right. President Trump being one of them. He's not the only one who's been bashing, big, uh, right. bashing Section 230. And so the combination of all that negative publicity uh, directed towards Section 230 creates a very unstable situation in Washington, D.C. Um, there's not a lot of people who are saying Section 230 is good. There are a lot of people saying Section 230 is bad, um, whether they're right or wrong. And, uh, and so uh, that creates really fertile grounds for potential uh, political reform. Now you're you're you obviously are in Silicon Valley and, and you deal with this stuff every day and you interact with a lot of the companies that um, are sort of under the um, you know deal with the issues around Section two thirty. Are the majority of tech companies in alignment on the future of this issue? And if not, what are the differences? So um so we've had a growing number of, quote, tech companies that have come out against Section 230. Um, but up until fairly recently, most of those tech companies actually didn't have any user-generated content that benefited from Section 230. Hmm. So really, they had no skin in the game. It was an easy way for them to say, we are a tech company and we oppose Section 230. Um, and politicians love stuff like that. <laughs> um, and honestly, it costs the company nothing. So as long as Section 230 is viewed as a problem, uh, the companies can come out and uh, say uh, that they they support the popular view, um, but they're not really risking anything. So I'll give you some examples. Companies like IBM have come out um, against Section 230 right. and Oracle has come out against Section 230. And these are companies that rely very little on Section 230. Honestly, they don't have a whole lot of expertise on the topic. Mm. And so uh, when they say that they're opposed to Section 230, you know, Anyone who knows the industry says, yeah, so. Right. Um, but what's changed in the last couple of years is that um, uh, the internet giants have changed their position. So Google used to be actively defending Section 230, and Google's basically sidelining itself. It's mm -hmm. trying to stay uh, below the bullets line as much as possible. But what it means is Google's not likely to come out swinging in favor of protecting Section 230. They're just going to go with the flow. Right. Um, and Facebook has come out repeatedly saying that they think that there should be Section 230 reform, which is extremely problematic for the industry because Facebook's view 
is that if Section 2 is reformed, Facebook mints money, it can afford to accommodate the regulatory changes, but its competitors won't be able to uh, afford uh, the changes the way it can. And it's a way of drawing a competitive moat around Facebook. Hmm. So Facebook's in it for himself, itself, as most companies are. That's not a criticism, but it suggests that Facebook, when it says it's, it's pro-Section 2 reform, what they're really saying is that they're anti-competition. And unfortunately, the politicians hear the message, well, Facebook's not staying up for Section 230. I guess the industry is okay with it, or they're split. And if they're right. split, that means that anything that they're saying can be undermined by uh, the statements of other um, uh, industry participants. So when Facebook has come out in favor of Section 230 reform, that puts extraordinary pressure on the industry. And then some other smaller companies have come out and said, we also favor Section 230 reform, but don't listen to Facebook because <laughs> Facebook is just in it for itself. So what we want is be a, a seat at the table so that Facebook can't just carve up our industry for its competitive benefit. Hmm. Um, and there's still many companies that oppose Section 230 reform and will go on record as doing so. They usually hide behind an industry association to do so. Hmm. Um, but uh, so the industry has gotten into kind of like a checkerboard of right. uh, approach to the Section 230. It's gotten much more complicated. But this is this the, the politicians love it when an industry is divided because they can just carve us up, divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. Does that... Um Sort of a follow up to that question. What does it mean for competition, especially in Silicon Valley? I mean, you know, it's tough to describe what would be um, a, a competitor to some of these larger companies. But what do you think this sort of checkerboard approach? Is it sort of sapping the resources or how do you describe that? Well, so um, what we've seen over the course of internet history is that sometimes a company comes in, uh, competes with an incumbent squarely on the merits, and then just does a better job. Mm -hmm. I would point to something like how Google bested Yahoo. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just a straight out uh, one-to-one brawl, and Google had a better technology um, and uh, and just uh, was able to uh, leapfrog Yahoo. Um, In other times, we see uh, basically... Uh, the entire niche get eclipsed by new uh, ways of interacting where uh, the competition isn't squarely one-to-one. Um, it's it's a totally different way of solving the problem. Um, this is like the, you know, old uh, um, uh, Clay Christensen uh, stuff about uh, the dilemma uh, that incumbents face, that right. they can just be blindsided by new entrants into the market. Um, and so, um, so when we talk about competition, um, it seems unlikely that anyone's going to come in and best Google at what Google right. is best at. Um, but it's incredibly uh, likely that someone's going to come up with a new way of doing searching functions that doesn't compete directly with Google, but still solves the same problem. And those kinds of competitors can enter the marketplace, overcome Google, um, and, uh, uh, and and then the, compl- the, the competitive complexity just, uh, we, we never saw it coming because we were looking for the direct competitors, not these, um, right. uh, these eclipsing competitors. Um, Section 230 is the foundation on which any competitor that's going to eclipse Google or Facebook is going to have to rely. Mm-hmm. They, they need the protection of Section 230 to get big enough to the point where they can then become self-powered with their own profits um, to be able to afford any non-Section 230 regime. 
if Section 230 isn't available, those competitors have to make the, all the upfront investments that, uh, that uh, Google and Facebook are making before they can compete directly on the merits. And that guarantees no one will be able to afford it. That's that's really interesting looking at it. And I think it's a little bit into the next question is um, the role that content moderation plays in this. So maybe you could describe that a little bit. Where is the role of content moderation and and what's your opinion how uh, technology firms are addressing it right now? So um, there isn't a single uniform definition of content moderation, mm-hmm. um, but let me use my definition. When I think about content moderation, I'm really talking about the gathering organizing and uh, publication of third-party content. And that can include uh, the depublication or removal or other adjustments to uh, content once already published. Um, And content moderation uh, is incredibly hard to do well. Um, And here's here's one of the key insights about it. Part of the reason why it's hard to do well is because different communities need different things. Um, So your audience, for example, is going to have different expectations for how content will be moderated um, in any conversations this your group is having Mm -hmm. compared to a very different community that has entirely different dynamics about their conversation. Um, They're going to be looking for different kinds of um, uh, solutions to help guide their conversations. Um, so content moderation is hard in part because every community needs different things. And when you have multiple communities all under the same roof, you can't do one size fits all solutions. You actually have to then optimize or harmonize your content moderation solutions for what the particular niches need. And that means uh, that you need really good engineers. You need really good marketing people or UI developers to understand uh, what's going on. And then you need people to back in to actually enforce the rules. Um, so developing a content moderation function is is really complicated and hard and expensive to do well. Does that, uh, I mean, getting back to your previous point about how things are shaking up between the larger and the newer players and the smaller players, does content moderation give it a competitive advantage, advantage to the larger players or what you're, is what you're describing, it's such a niche issue, content moderation is, is a, a better tool for smaller startups going into this space. Well, there's a lot of different ways of doing content moderation, and that actually proves to be a, a point of competitive differentiation between companies. Um, uh, company A may say that they take a really tightly curated approach to their uh, community, and company B might say, we take a pretty light-handed approach to content moderation, and each of them might be in the exact same niche, serving the same audiences, and they can just use that as a point of competitive differentiation. Um, so in that sense, it's absolutely um, a, a grounds for competitive contesting. But more importantly, um, Google and uh, Facebook or, you know, Google in this case, principally with YouTube or Facebook with its uh, social media service, they have um, thousands of people doing content moderation work around the globe. Very, very expensive for anyone else to try and replicate that function. But they do that. And I put this in quotes, voluntarily, Hmm. at least here in the United States, because Section 230 says they're not liable for third party content, they could choose to do less if they wanted to do so. But they 
choose to do more than the law requires them to do because it's in their overall audience's interest that they're doing the work that they do. Now, as a result, that means that if we were to reform Section 230 so that now everyone has to do as uh, the service levels that Google and Facebook can achieve because they've got thousands of moderators costing them extraordinary amounts of money, then it's impossible for anyone to enter that field because they won't be able to build the kind of industrial grade solutions that Google and Facebook can afford. And that's where the competitive mode gets enriched. Hmm. And that's why section two, the reform is really in many respects about how we see the industry. Do we want to lock in Google and Facebook from ever being fa uh, uh, faced with real competition again, because they're willing to make the investments in content moderation and they can afford to do so, or do we want a market where new entrants can come in? They don't have to build the industrial grade solutions on day one. They can build it over time as, as the need arises. And as a result, um, uh, the entry barriers are lower. So, I mean, given all this, do you expect the business models to change at all? Some of the largest social networks are, if I understand correctly, are driven a lot by advertising revenue. Um, do you think that sort of business model uh, will change because of what's going on right now? I do, and I worry uh, greatly about that. So let me tell you the dystopian future that I see. Hmm. I think that when Congress is done mucking with Section 230, along with the changes that are taking place internationally, especially in Europe, um, what's going to happen is that uh, most services are going to decide they can't afford to publish user-generated content, um, what I might call amateur content. Right. Um, that, uh, that the liability is too great, the content moderation costs are too high, the risks of getting it wrong are, are, are too substantial. Um, and so they're going to they're going to shut down the ability uh, for amateurs to publish content or mm -hmm. to sh shut down the ability for us to talk to each other as in an ordinary way. Mm -hmm. What they'll do instead is some companies will retrench into only publishing professionally produced content that they license. Um, and so what we'll do is we're going to go back to what we had basically as the cable model, of the 1990s, mm -hmm. which was uh, that uh, it was uh, cable uh, uh, broadcasters at the time were basically walled gardens. They only published professionally produced content. Uh, customers paid a monthly fee that was then divvied up among all the, uh, uh, the content broadcasters uh, who are part of a particular uh, cable system. Um, and so that's what we're going to see in the future is we're going to see a, a, a smaller number of walled gardens that are going to have professionally produced content that we'll have to pay to access. Um, that's an entirely radically different vision of the Internet than we currently have today. But it's one that the regulators seem to be forcing us into. Is that sort of a, the sort of a Substack model sort of thing or is that... I haven't used Substack, so I'm yeah. not sure uh, about uh, their value proposition. Um, some of the services uh, have some kind of freemium type model right. where some parts are free and others are uh, behind a paywall. Um, and, uh, and so we've seen some examples of that already. The point is that the stuff that's put out for free um, will probably be professionally produced as well. It's hmm. not going to be the amateur content that we're used to consuming uh, on a daily basis. My final question, um, you know, given who our audience is, I mean, their work is in the finance side. So they're trying to think about, you know, project revenue or think about cost and, and things of that nature. Um, I guess in your mind, and, and let me know if this is too of an existential question for you, but um, what would you look out for uh, in the future saying, OK, this is. 
this is where it's going to change. This is, there's no going back. You know, the, you know, the business models are going to have to change. Are you expecting, what, what would be sort of the lodestar of, of something happening where you'd say, okay, now is the time to rethink the way you're doing things? Well, obviously, uh, your members uh, cut across so many different industry sectors. And so it's a little hard to speak mm-hmm. across all the different industry sectors. But let me give you an example of something that um, uh, that your uh, members might want to think about. Uh, the uh, There's a lot of discussion about um, paid versus earned media. Mm-hmm. Um, that in order to generate marketing attention, uh, you have to pay for advertising unless you can earn it somehow, whether that's through press releases or through uh, 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 viral marketing um, uh, or other uh, types of uh, organic conversations. And the model I just described, all those organic conversations online are, are potentially going to go away. Right. And so that means that uh, your members are now going to be looking at how much harder it is to acquire earned media. You're going to be forced back to more paid media as a result. Um, in order to get the attention in the marketplace, you're going to have to pay for it more. Um, so I think that that's the kind of thing that um, we can't really anticipate all the different ripple effects of a Section 230 reform, but that's a good example where, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, CFOs might be deciding they're going to have to put extra money into the advertising budget um, just in order to, uh, to stay in place because a lot of the organic conversations just died. Well, that's uh, a lot to think about. I want to thank you for taking the time and I really appreciate you uh, giving your insights on this. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure.